0: Welcome to Fit for Duty, the podcast elevating occupational health. I'm Dr. Larry Earl, President of the National Association of Occupational Health Professionals. As guardians of workplace health, we stand at the intersection of well-being and success. Fit for Duty delves into hot topics, OSHA-regulated exams, workers' comp, drug testing, and so much more. Join us for practical tips, real stories, and conversations that spark change. Whether you're a seasoned professional or passionate about healthy workplaces, Fit for Duty is your roadmap to a fitter, safer, and more productive workplace. Subscribe now on all major podcast platforms. Let's shape a future where well being fuels workplace excellence. This is Fit for Duty with Dr. Larry Earle. Imagine this a worker walks into your clinic limping and worried. Their productivity grinds to a halt. The clock starts ticking on lost time and soaring costs. Will you be overwhelmed by the pressure or will you rise to the challenge of guardian of the workplace jungle? Today on Fit for Duty, we unveil the secrets of the occupational medicine elite. Join us as we unlock the big four metrics that make champions in this critical field. Lost time, unnecessary recordables, intuitive work restrictions, First Comp phone calls, these are the battlegrounds where occupational medicine professionals like Dr. John Kaylor, founder of OcDoc1, and an industry veteran navigate with precision and skill. Dr. Kaler knows that mastering these big four is not just about healing bodies. It's about safeguarding livelihoods, protecting businesses, and ultimately ensuring the well-being of the human machine that drives our economy. In this episode, we'll delve into Dr. Kaler's toolkit, exploring the evidence-based strategies, effective communication techniques, and expert insights that make him a leader in the field. We'll learn how to minimize lost time, streamline paperwork, craft workable restrictions, and navigate the complexities of the workers' compensation claims. Join us as we turn theory into practice, transforming workplace injuries into triumphs of human resilience. This is Fit for Duty, and the revolution in occupational medicine starts now. Today, we welcome a pioneer in the world of urgent care and occupational medicine, Dr. John Kaler. A visionary leader, Dr. Kaler saw a need long before its time. Bridging the Gap Between Urgent Care and Occupational Medicine. His story is about to take you on a journey from emergency rooms to bustling factory floors and everything in between. In 1987, Dr. Kaler dared to do the unthinkable. He founded Physicians Immediate Care, the first ever hybrid clinic model in the area, marrying the speed of urgent care with the specialized expertise of occupational medicine. Today, that bold vision has blossomed into a thriving network of over 50 Chicago-area clinics, recently joining the WellNow Urgent Care Group, serving worried workers and everyday patients seeking swift, reliable care. But Dr. Kaler's impact extends far beyond his own clinics. His deep understanding of the unique challenges faced by both healthcare providers and businesses has made him a trusted advisor to some of the world's biggest names— Corporations you've all heard of, the Fortune 500 giants who rely on his expertise to keep their workplace healthy and productive. Yet amidst all the success, Dr. Kaler remains firmly rooted in his passion, occupational medicine. This emergency medicine and occupational medicine double threat understands the specific needs of injured workers and the complex dance between recovery and productivity. And that's where OkDoc One comes in. Dr. Kaler, ever the innovator, has translated his vast experience into a web-based tool, a virtual lifeline for occupational medicine providers. OkDoc One provides evidence-based guidelines, streamlines treatment protocols, and empowers practitioners to tackle even the most challenging workplace injuries with confidence. So join us as we delve into the mind of Dr. John Kaler, the trailblazer who saw a need and built an empire, the champion of both workers and businesses, and the doctor who turned his experience into a digital lifeline. This is a conversation you won't want to miss. Welcome, John. How are you? Hi, Larry. I'm doing well. Thanks. Good. Hey, uh, you know, as we start this, what I'd like to do is let's go uh, to the Wayback Machine to 1987, when you started uh, Physicians Immediate Care. And I know that you had some real challenges that actually led to your occupational medicine career. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so I didn't know what I didn't know back in 87. I just knew urgent care was a good idea. I saw it in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I was training in emergency medicine. And so I thought it'd be a, a nice sidelight for the ER group that I was in. I trained in, initially in emergency medicine. So we opened the clinic just kind of goofing around and uh, it wasn't going well. We were losing money. We had a class D site. Okay, It was put up as a spec building by a builder who simply put the building in a demographic center, but it was on in, uh, a street with only 5,000 cars a day, which you know that's Deadly, right? For urgent care, you have to have visibility. So, yeah, we're looking for 20 uh, we were to 30.
0: Yeah.
1: Right, right. Uh, we were struggling mightily, and a friend of mine tipped me off about doing DOT physicals, and so I said, you know, what's the DOT, <laughs> okay? Uh, Department of Transportation. So we started doing DOT physicals because I was able to call employers, uh, trucking companies, and say, hey, uh, we'll do your DOT physicals for you. And so we started getting those, and then we were getting these injuries. And the injuries were the fees were higher because x-rays were involved recheck visits and i realized wow this has potential here to dig us out of our hole that we're in and so serendipity the challenge of a very lousy location led to the development of the hybrid model urgent care med which we were one of the first groups in the country to do that which then parlayed into profitability and into the ability to have clinics in locations that we're not pure urgent care locations. So we could do hybrid locations where we're near industrial parks, but we have some traffic and we get urgent care and we're at comp both. And it worked quite well for us. And so uh, the challenge was that near fatal mistakes. And I've seen groups, you know, unfortunately, there's a few fatal mistakes that you can make. A poor location is one of them, which we did. We survived by the grace of God. So it is what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And before, so before we get into all the workers' comp and occupational medicine, just in general, what advice would you give other healthcare professionals who are looking to innovate in their own practice areas? Maybe they've got, you know, similar situation where, gee, I went into this location, it didn't work out. How do you figure that out? So
1: it's kind of like you you have to figure out how to make money. You have to figure out uh, how to be profitable? And our answer was injuries and volume. So what, I don't know what others answers could be. I mean, some are doing trying to weave in family practice, aesthetics, orthopedics, all kinds of weight loss, you know, etc. So great. But the problem is you have to make money at it. So quote unquote, yeah. you know, adding another service line could actually hurt you more than help you because if it sucks resources, you can't see the volume that's coming in efficiently because you're spending too much time on something else which is which in my in my experience it's just my experience nothing against family practice but my experience from observing a number of groups for all these years try to do family practice they struggle with the turnaround time is so long if you can't you absolutely cannot spend 30 minutes in the room with the patient you in, you, in an urgent care mm-hmm. center your your fixed costs are too high they are they're, yeah. they're too high
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things I think you touched on uh, is not only do you have to see if there's an opportunity, a market for certain services that you might, I mean, there's all sorts of things people are adding to urgent care practice, right? All sorts of sideline businesses. You've mentioned a bunch of them. You need to champion in the practice. You know, someone's got to really have a passion for doing it or it's just going to fall on its face.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you have to you have to do your research. You have to do your research on the right coding and make sure what you're doing Always. is legal and yeah. you're not going to get clawed back by B C B S or something for for, you know, some some algorithm for allergy testing, you know, and they say this wasn't appropriate. Let's we want to look at your algorithm. And if they say your algorithm isn't appropriate for doing allergy for, for testing these particular 200,000 patients or whatever, they could try to claw back on you for that revenue or worse yet, you know, run into the feds, you know, so, you know, which speaks to the pain management side of, of that, of that whole equation for narcotics and stuff. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would just say you have, you know, and some advice I got, it was about probably maybe 15 years ago, 18 years ago was John you need to work on your business, not in your business. And so yeah. at the time we probably had maybe 18, 20 clinics and I was working at all the new new clinic. We had a new clinic, I would go work there and try to make sure that everything goes well. And you know, that's not scalable. You have to work on your business, uh, not necessarily in your business if you're a doctor. You know? So homework, you gotta do your homework, you gotta study it, learn from others, go to conferences, listen. Ask questions. I mean, you got to put the work in to to survive, you know, and so in my case, I put the work in on the ground. I I pounded the pavement for work comp sales. I mean, I was out there selling. I had as many as 14 appointments in one day. That's my highest.
0: To go visit, to go on site at company yeah. locations. I told
1: the, yeah. I told them I'd be there. I don't know when, but I'll be there. I said, fine, because doctors never come visit us. So you're welcome to come right. anytime. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's so a real differentiator,
0: up. right? When yeah. You, yeah. Oh, when yeah. you go out. I mean, uh, and visit. Well, it's,
1: it's the hand. Sure. They saw the hands on commitment. They saw that I was yeah. truly interested and I was willing to put the work in. I wasn't in like an ivory tower, you know, doctor situation, you know, where I wouldn't even talk to you. Because right now, there's a lot of employers, you know, they call to talk to the provider that's treating their work injury and they don't let them, the nurses are the firewall and the nurses say, no, the doctor's busy. Yeah. That's utterly yeah. unacceptable in, in workers' comp, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. and we're, we're gonna jump into that, absolutely. How has the landscape of workers' comp care changed since you founded Physicians Immediate Care back in, the, in 87? What are, what are the bigger trends now? Dramatic, okay. I'll start with kind of a slower moving
1: one, which was safety. Absolutely. Safety programs are nowadays are off the charts. Nothing like it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I was seeing mangled hands and fingers and just, you know, swinging batteries, crushing legs. I mean, just insanity 37, 38 years ago on safety. that It was, you know, they thought they had safety programs, but they didn't have safety programs. And so the number of severe injuries have absolutely plummeted god bless it's fantastic fatalities are way down serious injuries are way way down that is a fabulous trend i would say the trend of urgent cares doing work comp is a trend urgent cares because when i started it was orthopedic groups that did it orthopedics and a few hospital-based programs and i was kind of the community-based entrepreneurial urgent care what are you you're weird you know we don't even know what you are you know to where it is now, where urgent cares are ubiquitous, completely understood, Another, that's a trend. Another trend is the use of APPs as the predominant provider in center, sure. nothing new there, but I'll tell you what, dramatic, it's the most dramatic trend in, in all these years, and that trend is new, it's a 10 year trend, it's been going on for 10 years, it's actually, it's gonna start plateauing because you can't get more than 100% APPs in your clinic, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know I think I mean? we're at about eighty-five uh, percent now. Yeah. Eighty-five, ninety, somewhere in there.
1: Right. So that's going to flatten out, and the only need for phys- there's groups with nurse practitioners are their medical directors. So physicians yeah. are leadership folks, and that they're getting squeezed. I mean, it just is. It's happening with the private equity ownership. The how can I say this? Focus on profits. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying private equity's bad. I'm just saying I'm watching with my eyes and I'm seeing physicians being squeezed out of clinic positions, squeezed out even of regional medical director positions. They have not been squeezed out of chief medical officer positions yet. Um, so if you're a physician in urgent care, you might want to think about you know, an MBA or think about positioning yourself in a leadership position, making it known. You want to lead providers and you need to have leadership skills, you need to have Uh, The personality and motivation, the work ethic, the ability to take phone calls and lead train, training. Oh, my goodness. Training. Procedure training. You have to train them how to sew lacerations, do injections, treat eye injuries. I mean, if we don't do it, we lose it. And the medical leadership, the physician medical leadership, a number of them aren't interested in acuity of care. They're just interested in, I don't know, having a job and... I'm not seeing the fire in the belly for procedures. You have to do them to do true occupational medicine. You have to do them to be profitable. Your wage inflation is going to take over unless you figure this out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so let's let's get into some of that. Let's talk about the big four metrics. Let's dive into the big four metrics. Lost time, unnecessary recordables, intuitive work restrictions, and first comp. Phone calls. Can you pat, unpack each one of those and uh, let us know why they're so critical for occupational sure. medicine providers? Absolutely.
1: These. This is kind of like distilled oh, down, you know, thousand to one distillation down to what absolutely, totally matters. If you you will fail if you don't do this. That's what. That's how important these are. And this comes yeah. from millions of visits, millions of patient visits, tens of thousands of clients. So. Lost time. Okay. Lost time is very expensive for employers. It changes your production ability. Some some companies give a hit to your bottom line. They charge you $5,000 a day for every lost day. There's lost time metrics with comparative metrics against other similar industry groups or within their own company between sites manufacturing sites you know who was not so good who was good who is, who gets to go up on the podium annually at the conference you know the convention or whatever so there's lots of spin-offs and say, face it these safety directors god bless them they they could make eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year they might have may or may not have an undergraduate degree they got training in safety and their agenda is to prevent fatalities and prevent lost time and unnecessary recordables. I mean, that's their JOB. And if they're not successful, they might not maintain their employment. That's a big deal. When you live in a town with kids in high school and they don't wanna, you know what I mean? This this is important to them, it really is. And so us medical providers, sometimes we can have a cavalier attitude like, look, I don't work for them, I work for the patient. Well, you do, you work for everybody, okay? And what I try to talk about is I'm for the truth. I'm not for the patient, the company. I'm for the truth. And if the case, whatever the case is, the objectivity of the case, the clinical findings, the plan of treatment, I get people better. I don't ever compromise the quality of care under any circumstances ever. But we need to be willing to sympathize and, be, and listen to and cooperate with these employers who, who are in a tough spot. And we have the power of the pen, which means off-duty, off prescription drugs, whatever. And, and, and we, we have to think of, we owe them thought. We owe them effort and thought. So yeah. lost time. Why do they need to go off work? Why? Well, if they're going to the ER and they need immersion surgery, absolutely they're off work. If they have a serious infection that they need to be with warm compresses, elevation at home, that's okay too. Companies don't mind a legit lost time. But when you take them off for a lumbar strain, take them off for a finger laceration You know, you have to be prepared as an occupational medicine specialist to give full justification to the employer as to why it is necessary that they must be outside of the workplace. They must be at home. So they would say, look, they can watch security cameras. They can read safety manuals. They can watch safety videos. They can um, do any number of things. Uh, in the uh, sit down sedentary duty, they'll take them with sit down sedentary duty so that they then either are left with either accommodating those restrictions or sending the worker home if they can't accommodate. So it's on them. The lost time is then on them. So it's incumbent upon them to develop alternate duty op- options for their workers if, if they don't want to have lost time. So lost time is number one for heartburn for the employers okay just just don't take them off work I mean it's like you've got to have a just have to have a solid clinical medical reason why they must be off work okay OSHA recordables unfortunately for better or for worse this is it we're stuck with it right if it requires a prescription it's recordable that's physical therapy that's prescription drugs probably 85 to 90 percent Larry you can check me on that of unnecessary recordables are prescription drugs on the first visit. Why do they need Mobic and, and Cyclobenzaprine on the first visit? Why? Why really? do they need yeah. prescription drugs on the first visit? I believe in OTCs, Tylenol Plus, and NSAID on the first visit and the second visit for routine strains, sprains, contusions, and workers' comp. Why not? Come on. Why not? You know, why? It's good analgesia. It's proven in the literature. It approaches T3 levels of analgesia with those two meds. It wor- I've done it myself. Um, thousands upon thousands, ten, tens of thousands of bottles of that is distributed, dispensed in our clinics every year. Yeah. And so, and the companies absolutely love it. And I can tell you, anybody who's listening to what I'm saying, if you can be successful on the big four, the companies will worship the ground you walk on and consider you a rock star. I don't care if you put shoulders back in or not. Okay. They don't care if you put a shoulder back in. God bless if you do. It's fun, it's great. Fabulous, but the big four is it. This is it. They will love you. They will worship the ground you walk on. Your program will grow. Your program can't be unsuccessful. You can't fail. It's impossible, almost impossible to fail. If you're really highly successful on the big four, you will be the word of mouth with employers alone will get you business. They'll call you and say, Hey, I heard from Joe at the conference. We have a safety committee, a safety sherm, you know, or whatever, a safety group organization meeting, and everyone's talking your praises. We got we to get you over here to give a talk to our group, and, and we want to yeah. use you. You know, the OSHA recordable group. I mean, these folks, the utilities, the energy companies, and all their subcontracts, the word will pass like wildfire if you are avoiding unnecessary recordables. And, and, and axiomatic to that is NSAID and Tylenol. NSAID and Tylenol. Tylenol and NSAID. That's all you got to do.
0: Yeah. A, a lot of folks, when they're looking at OSHA recordables, don't understand the lost time uh, restrictions on that. You know, giving someone off o- over a weekend, for instance, or over a holiday actually counts as lost time if you don't return them tomorrow, right? You can only have today as lost hours of the day. If they're, if they're not returned tomorrow, even if they don't usually work that shift, I think that, that, that to me is one of the huge sort of mistakes that folks make. So I, my point is make sure you understand the OSHA recordable criteria and in particular, the first aid criteria within the OSHA recordable criteria. And, uh, you know, we have whole sessions on that and there's plenty of education available for what's an OSHA recordable in the first place. So absolutely has to be understood. So from that, okay, so we've, unfortunately, we have a worker who does need restriction, you know, does need restrictions. They, you've looked at their uh, job description, hopefully their functional job description. So you know how much they have to sit, stand, walk, push, pull, carry, climb, all that. And you've determined, well, I'm going to need to place some restrictions on this. So what are intuitive work restrictions? Explain that term to us.
1: Yeah, common sense, work restrictions. It drives the companies crazy when you put no running, jumping, or ladder climbing. And they go, Dr. Kaler, don't your providers even know what we do do here? We don't do running, jumping, or ladder climbing here. Okay, (laughs) you know? So, uh, intuitive work restrictions means first and foremost, you have to understand what exactly they do in their job. So, you are restricting what needs restricted. The idea of restriction in the first place is to give the injured body structure relative rest. Relative rest, rest means rest. So that could be a wrist support and full duty because there's still relative rest with that wrist support on, okay? And so you have to think about it. So why would you say uh, one arm duty for a finger laceration? That doesn't make any sense. They'd say the other four fingers work fine. And if you put rip on the finger laceration, why can't they use that finger? Especially if it's on the dorsal aspect of the finger. Ventral aspect, maybe you'll put a little dish of lumifoam on there as a protector. Or, you know, again, MediRip. You have to think about it. Like, okay, here's their injury. This is the body structure that's injured. How can I provide a restriction, if they need one, that gives relative rest to the particular body structure? So let's say rotator cuff, for example. It could be work in your power zone which is like the baseball strike zone, okay? At not up here. So you could say avoid over the shoulder level work. You could say work in your power zone. These things make sense rather than saying no work with the right shoulder. What does that mean? No right. work with the right shoulder. Can I, work, can I go eat lunch and use a fork to eat my lunch? You know, the classic one is no bending at the waist. That's absolutely classic, non-intuitive crazy work restriction, but everybody does it. I'm talking orthopods, ACMED, urgent care, everybody. It makes no sense. You, I, I'm, I'm flexed at the waist right now, okay, and I'm sitting. Okay, you can't eat your lunch, you can't get in your car without bending at the waist. So why would you ever say no bending at the waist? Please, you know, you think you have to think about exactly what, you know, and if you take something out of thumb spike, you know, take something out of commission, You've protected the thumb. They can still do things with their hands. So really think you got to, yep, it's thought process to get intuitive, common sense, appropriately applicable work restrictions.
0: So for each of those big fours, will you, give, you, you mentioned this, uh, an example of a shoulder injury. Can you give us some other specific examples that you like of how you successfully improve performance uh, for each of those big fours? Okay. uh, Well, lost time,
1: they don't incur the cost of lost time claim. The patient is at work doing something productive, not watching television for the plaintiff's attorneys. So that improves global performance by having them perform at work instead of at home. The unnecessary OSHA recordables, that affects their ability. I asked the company once in a meeting... They're very uh, anxious about OSHA recordables. and I said, "What? What exactly is an OSHA recordable worth to you? I mean, what? Twenty-four million dollars. What? <laughs> 20, why yeah. is that?" And they said, "Because our average bid value on a bid project, because they're a, a utility subcontractor, is twenty-four million dollars. And if their OSHA mod rate is above a certain threshold, they are. It's on a website. They look at the yeah. the big guys look at the websites. They're out. No, don't send it to them. Send it to the other." And so this is but unfortunately this is where the hysteria comes from because when 24 million dollars yeah. is hinging on ibuprofen 600 you know yeah. ibuprofen 600 is 24 million dollars that's kind of a unfortunate situation but that's the that's what that's the pond we swim in yeah. so yeah. that that's the impact of that and intuitive work restrictions is that you can actually put them back to work doing something productive instead of know what do we do with this restriction we'll have to put them in the office or send them home the um first comp phone calls we haven't talked about yet that's the fourth one uh that's that's a communication before before we get to that
0: i i just want to yeah before we get to the phone calls very important but before we get there let's just talk for a moment about you know number three well and, and number one you know time time loss versus osha recordables now so if you have any time loss, you, you, you know, you're going to have OSHA recordable. But if you have even a transfer or a modified duty prescription, you are going to have a recordable. So you've you maybe lost that risk, but you still have the additional risk of being off duty. And it's not just the time loss itself, it's what happens to the patient. Talk a little bit about deconditioning and about not being in the mindset of productivity and how that delays recovery. Well they've done studies. They've done studies.
1: People at home don't get better as fast as people who come to work on light duty. That's that's, that's there's literature on that. So what is that? Is that it psychological? It's it's multi, multifactorial. I mean, watching TV, laying around, I mean, doing some things around the house. I mean, gets to be nice as opposed to getting in your car and going to work. So it's got a psychological effect. Deconditioning, absolutely. Uh, losing range of motion, splinting things, not not being active. So the psychological effects and the deconditioning effects are ramifications of being at home instead of being at work. The point you, you made about recordable,
0: right? Whatever you can do to keep people moving in yeah, some right. fashion is going to put you way ahead. All right, well, let's tackle number four. Let's go into phone calls, right? When do we make phone calls? Yeah, I want to make one point before yeah, yeah. that one that's uh,
1: a lot of the companies I work with that are highly concerned about unnecessary recordables, they have a broad full duty job description. And so when the patient comes back with light duty restrictions, if they can accommodate that worker within their full duty job description, it's not recordable. So to your point, if they're outside their job, their regular job description recordable for a restriction, but the ones, the ocean sensitive companies I work with, they've got, plenty of light duty in their job description to put people in and keep it yeah. all recordable.
0: Well, I, I think, you know, one caveat there, one, uh, one corollary, I guess it is, is that they, they must have performed those duties, you know, recently, like, like the, the actual uh, verbiage, I think, is within the last week. So even if they have those in their job description, they have to rotate through them to make sure they've been actively performing those duties.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure of exactly how compliant they are with all that. I just know that in all these years I've never had something really hit the fan badly for an employer that I was told about. Like, hey, we just got crushed on our OSHA recordable log, OSHA 300 log. Never, I don't know. I I know there's things out there, but nothing, no one's ever called me up and said, you know, your philosophies about all this got us into trouble. It's never occurred, never. Right. um, On to uh, first comp phone calls. This is so yeah, simple, like unbelievable. It, it really is so is. sticky, it is so appreciated. They'll worship the ground you walk on. It's as simple as this, okay? Because they'll say, Another phone call, I gotta make another phone call. I don't have time to see the patients I am seeing. Well, it goes like this Hey, Bill, I saw Joe, Joe today here at the clinic. He's got a lumbar spine strain, our x ray is negative. It's routine strain. We're going to go and give him light duty at 25 pounds lifting limit, back support, Tylenol, naproxen, non-recordable. I'll see him back next Tuesday between the hours of eight to two. How's that? That's great. Thank you so much for Done. calling. That was about 15 Done. seconds. I mean, it. it's just, it's that easy. And they can ask questions like, you know, well, you know, do you, what do you, what do you think about him? Is he being honest? You know, well, the finding show, and you just talk about a little bit, but uh, by and large, and nowadays it goes to voicemail a lot, but it's still appreciated. Yeah. It's still yeah. appreciated, even if you go to voicemail, leave it on voicemail, and that's when you tell them about the recordable. That's when you tell them about non-recordable. If there, are, if for us, it, we had a designation in our EHR that if they're OSHA sensitive, we would tell them. If they, if they're not OSHA sensitive, then they don't care to know, so
0: you don't talk about yeah. it. But. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the return to duty prescription forms and EHR and forms in EHR do track that now. If you have anything that is you know, at, at least somewhat competent in documentation for work comp injuries, there, there usually is some provision for marking off, whether it's in a recordable or at least whether there's a prescription medication and time loss, and, and the, the employer can usually have enough information there to figure that out. So, uh, yeah, should be well documented. Good. John, what are some common pitfalls that providers stumble into when dealing with these metrics, with these four items? How can they avoid them? Well, it seems to me
1: the biggest impediment is emotional. Getting past the idea of, you know, I don't work for the company. Why, why would I care about these things? I just treat patients. I don't want to think about these other issues. So, that's, they get into trouble because they, I don't know the exact reason, whether it's mental or emotional, lack of engagement or laziness or lack of experience or what, but however it takes to get there, they need to get there. And I had a, I had a question from an OctDoc1 user just this week about how can I document the chart so I'm not the evil doctor? I mean, using the word evil, like this provider is afraid of practicing this way <clears throat> yeah. because they'll be viewed as being evil by the patient. Like, and, and the context of yeah. it was <clears throat> that the workers' low back pain had gotten better, but they had new pain elsewhere. Okay. The case is over. Okay. Hey, sir, your back strain is so much better. It's resolved. I'm going to go ahead and release you. And for this other pain, you should see your family doctor for that. I mean, and they're afraid of being the evil doctor. So I, I coached them through that. But so they have to get over the emotional side of it that the, the, the what you're doing here is seeking the truth. You're you're the you're on the high ground. You need to occupy the high ground of you seeking the truth. So if they are malingering, you need to say so. And, you you know, be able to do an examination that demonstrates that. And one has that in there. The validation steps on how to objectify that, but they can get into trouble with the fixation on prescription drugs, like as if they're a magic or something. Something magical happens when it goes from a yeah. non prescription to a prescription, it doesn't. You know, Tylenol and the Naproxen are just fine OTC level uh, prescriptions on the first two visits. First comp phone calls, it's just there's no, nothing in the way of that except lack of engagement. You know, you have to be committed to the cause, and the cause is doing great amount of great clinical medical care on injuries and and being able to be cognizant of and and, and be cooperative with these companies on their administrative concerns. These are administrative concerns
0: for them for the majority. It's not like no one's saying you have to put a shoulder back in okay. So let's talk about Ocdoc one. How did that idea for that come about? What specific need did you see that uh, was missing that is now fulfilled with Ocdoc one? Yeah. 150 providers and too many phone calls
1: because I had to keep everybody on the railroad tracks. I mean, these are the big four. These are railroad tracks, right? It's a a system, a way of doing things. And so, especially for the really large clients, I needed to take some phone calls and it was getting to be too much. And so I said, I need to put my brain on a website. I need to put, because everybody, everything's algorithm driven, right? You have an algorithm to treat a COVID patient. You have an algorithm to treat a back strain you know, this, then that, and, you know, you go on down and no matter how you, it is. And so I created these algorithms and made 385 guidelines supported with 400 videos within the guidelines to show and teach as it goes. So it's kind of like a residency program on a web-based platform or another way to put it that you've put it before, clinical decision support tool for clinicians treating injuries. That's what I call it. So it's literally a cookbook for them. And that's not demeaning in any any. It's not demeaning at all, because when you do a residency training program, if you did one, but the whole idea of a residency training program is you're working underneath people and you're presenting cases to them. So you're developing your algorithms and you have to do case presentations and then they critique your your presentations and ask you questions. They're building algorithms. If this, then that. What about this and what about that? What makes you think about that? And so Octop1 provides that algorithm for all these injuries. It's got all the medical legal danger points in it that you can't miss, right? The can't miss cases are in there. Yep. Um, it's nice. got all yep. the training videos, onboarding and training for new providers. And it's got the mission critical videos and core training videos for all things occupational medicine. So I made it to scale myself and provide then – all, all the clinics that want to be successful and work comp is everybody's working for scale. I mean, it's all about scale. Yeah. You can't, I, I, talk, I was talking to the other day and they go, uh, Oh yeah, we have two medical groups or, or two medical directors, two doctors, or two medical directors and we have 25 clinics. And I say, that's not workable <clears throat> to get where you want to get because you have turnover. You have a lot of moving parts, you know, two, one doctor, two doctors, you can't, it's really too hard to do all the onboarding training, keeping me everybody on the railroad tracks is too much work, too many charts to review to do it right. Okay. To do yeah. it, you know, part way, I guess, you know, you could do it with anything, but I think that it's, for me, it was a scalable tool, scaled myself across. And so the, the providers, they go right to the website first, get through that, had a question. They can call me then if they have a question as they go through. And these algorithms are my algorithms, every decision point they would ever face. When to order an MRI, when to order PT, how to interpret an MRI, how to interpret a post a follow-up x-ray on a fracture, you know, because I'm like, I don't know how to do fractures. Of course you don't, because you, if you never did it, you, so see one, do one, teach one. All the injection videos, see one, do one, teach one. You can do it.
0: Yeah. Well, there's an instant ROI on, on OCDoc1, and there's a, there's a link in the show notes to get on OCDoc1 if you've never seen it you got to have it for your occ uh, practice, your urgent care practice. Hey, this has been the Big Four in occupational medicine for provider performance with our dear friend, Dr. John Kaler. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Fit for Duty. Thanks, John. And that wraps up this episode of Fit for Duty. Thanks for joining me today, everyone. I hope you found this conversation as engaging and informative as I did As always, building healthier, happier workplaces starts with knowledge and collaboration. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to Fit for Duty wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you'll never miss a beat when it comes to the latest trends, best practices, and inspiring stories in occupational health. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and keep elevating workplace excellence.